2: Darts, it's as much a part of the festive period as the school nativity, midnight mass, spending time with the family, and fireworks on New Year's Eve. Except in 2020, when the fireworks will be silent, you need to pick your favourite relatives and only from two other households, midnight mass will be on Zoom, and the nativity is on hold, unless you're taking homeschooling really seriously. But at least the darts will be taking place. Back at Ali Pali for the 14th successive year. The PDC World Darts Championships begin on the 15th of December.
1: You see, there are some Christmas traditions that even Covid can't destroy. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the podcast where we speak to the men and women responsible for running sport, sports teams and sporting events in this country. Darts captures the public imagination every year in its traditional spot on the calendar of Christmas and New Year. And despite the global pandemic, 96 players will soon set out to become the world champions.
3: I'm Matt Porter and I'm the Chief Executive of the Professional Darts Corporation.
1: Matt, great to have you on
3: Great British Bosses
2: from Anything But Footy. So we've got nearly 100 darts players aiming to become the PDC World Champion over the next couple of weeks. How pleased are you that despite everything that 2020 has thrown at all of us, you're getting your event on.
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we're delighted to, to be able to stage the World Championship at Alexandra Palace, but we're ecstatic that we're going to have a crowd there as well. I think we've, got, we've proven ourselves this year with a good track record of delivering behind closed doors events, but we knew from day one when we started back in Milton Keynes uh, back in the summer that there would be a limited shelf life for them, and I think we've staged them as well as we can do, but ultimately the return to, to live crowds is, is where we all want to be, and it's a great way to be ending the year. And we said, didn't we, it's part of that traditional
2: festive programme over Christmas and New Year. The PDC World Championships is the darts, but it is that
3: that crowd and those supporters, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, we bill it as London's biggest Christmas party. And in recent years, it's morphed to Britain's biggest Christmas party and now Europe's biggest with the way that people travel from everywhere to to come and visit the event. And that pilgrimage up the hill at, at Ali Pali in, I was going to say, come rain or shine but it's normally just rain so you know it's it's something that people look forward to and and we're delighted that even though it'll be a smaller number than usual we're able to to be able to deliver that and for everybody else sat at home on their sofas looking forward to the end of this um this bizarre year it's uh, it's a nice way to do it.
1: Talk us through March when it all happened Matt and the realization that sport was stopping.
3: Yeah, it was strange. I mean, from a personal point of view, I went to the Cheltenham Festival. Um, I was there for two days and, and I, I love Cheltenham. It's a wonderful you know, that week in March, you know, and, and other times of the year, but especially in March, it's a great, it's a great experience, but it was strange. And, and we'd just come off the back of an event. Uh, uh, we do um, two events at Butlins in Minehead and we'd just come off the, the back of one of those where we were all joking around with each other. Oh, should we shake hands or oh, better not, you know? And it was, nobody had a clue, did they? The scale and the and the, 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 the scope of what was about to happen. Um, so we, we we left Cheltenham and we went to Liverpool for Premier League darts and we'd been a little bit wary at Cheltenham because people were starting to not shake hands and everybody was walking around with a bottle of sanitizer and just, just different things, you know. Um, and we went to Liverpool and it, and it struck me that was one of the strangest nights of Premier League darts in, in the MS Bank Arena up there that we'd ever had. We'd sold almost 7,500 tickets and the attendance was less than 5,000. We never get no shows of more than 10%, never, you know. So this was really weird and people were eerie. They, they were, they, they came because they bought a ticket and they like it, but they, you could tell people wanted to get out. You know, they didn't they didn't buy into it. And we almost just rushed through it with Sky that night just to get it done. And it was strange. And then we, we had a tour event that weekend in Barnsley. And on the Saturday, our tournament director phoned me and he said, we're going to be about 15 players down on Sunday because a lot of our overseas players are just flying home because they've been told they won't get back in otherwise. And we ended up, I mean, you know, we have a system where we we can fill empty slots in tournaments. And we ended up putting a guy in who didn't have a single ranking point to his name from anywhere. And he was just there because he'd entered Q School and he'd driven one of the players there. And it got to the point where it's like, this is silly now. We We can't keep putting these events on. Like the crowd don't want to be there. The players can't be there. You know we, we 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 can't jeopardize the integrity of things and some sports have pulled the plug a little bit everything happened so quickly didn't it particularly after Mikel Arteta tested positive that seemed to be a bit of a of a of a, of a snowball effect and and a lot of sports pulled the plug you know bang 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 in quick succession we tried to hang on but that that sort of phone call I got when it, I, was, I was told that there was you know a dozen or whatever it was players were flying home we, we said, right, well, we're going to have to press the pause button here. And, and little did we know that eight, nine months later, we'd still be sat here waiting to return to normal.
1: So then for nine, ten weeks, literally thing, everything stopped. So when did you then work out how to put on those events in Milton Keynes and the yeah, procedures we, that you had to do?
3: We, we'd managed to have some success with something called the home tour, which was where the players played each other remotely from home via, via um, webcams. Uh, and and online scoring systems and we're quite unique as a sport in that we've been able to do that so you know that was that was quite quite special and we were quite proud of that because there wasn't a lot of other live sport going on unless you wanted to watch the Belarusian football you know so so that that was that was good but it it, you know it clearly had to lead to something better because it you know it only had a, a very niche appeal um so we've been working with DCMS and we've been we've had good lines of communication with DCMS and they've been very helpful and very open with us throughout as they have been I'm sure with lots of other sports bodies to to the best of of the ability that they have been able to have from from you know the the people above them so we said look you know they published their return to sport guidelines and we said we you know we believe that darts is a sport that can be played in a socially distanced way Uh, I had the idea of going to um, the Marshall Arena in Milton Keynes, which was an, a, a venue we knew anyway. Um, but obviously it's got a, it, that, that environment there. It was closed because it was a f- football stadium and there's no football going on, but it had a hotel as well that was also closed. So to create a bubble, which was something that none of us knew what, what it was 12 months ago, and now it's how we live our lives in, in sport. Um, you know, we were able to create a bubble at the Marshall Arena and we've subsequently been able to do so at the Rico Arena as well. Staging the darts was actually quite easy. You know, we put some tape on the floor to tell players where they can and can't stand. We put some arrows up, some barriers. We tested them. We quarantined them. We put, kept them in a bubble. We didn't let anybody else in. It's a non-contact sport. So we told them you can't shake hands and crack on. You know, it, 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 uh, all right, there's a little bit more to it than that. But it actually wasn't our biggest challenge playing the sport. Our biggest challenge was everything that goes around it and bringing people in from all around the world and things like that. And for the
2: PDC World Championships, which are going to begin very shortly, what's the procedures that you've got in place then with Ali Pali? Is there a bubble in place? How does that work when you, you break, if you like, over the Christmas period?
3: Yeah, I don't know if we've got long enough for me to tell you everything, but you know, we, we've, we've obviously been working very hard with Ali Pali, who themselves were staging live events throughout the majority of the lockdown you know they had outdoor events they had socially distanced comedy shows inside and things like that so they've become quite experienced at how to manage these sort of things and, and and you know we've developed some understanding of our own we've had events with a crowd in germany and austria over the last few months that have been a big learning curve for us so together we've we've sort of pulled our resources and our, and our ideas um, and obviously people will sit in a socially distanced way when they when they come they'll, they'll come in there'll be no fan zone no fans village where people come to you know have a bit of build up before before there'll be none of that unfortunately you'll have to come in sit down you'll order your food and drink through a qr code on your table um if you want merchandise it's click and collect if you want to place a bet it's through the app the only time there'll be two occasions when you'll be able to leave your seat one's to go to the toilet one's to leave the venue so it will be a little bit more sterile than than you know the normal darts environment from the players' point of view, they will be bubbling in a, in a hotel. There'll be a red zone, which will be for players and their guests and, and our tested staff only. And they won't cross, um, you know, there won't be a walk-on. They'll be securely transported to the venue. They'll have uh, socially distance media commitments. We've scaled down a lot of their sponsor activity for obvious reasons. Um, but it's stuff that our players have been used to for the last six or seven months and something that they've actually embraced because they're self-employed people. And if they're not playing in events, they're not earning. So most of them are being ultra cautious about how they conduct themselves outside of tournament activity. And most of them are quite happy to follow the regulations and the, and, and the guidelines because ultimately they don't want to test positive. We do test them on arrival and then on rearrival if they leave, which they will be doing at this event more so than some of the shorter events. So they don't, they're, they're not taking any risks and, and that's reassuring from our point of view.
2: I presume though you do have protocols in place if you do return a positive test. What is going to yeah. happen there? Will the event be able to carry on
3: yeah we 'll have a you know i mean again because of the social distancing that, that darts can generate um, we 're not going to have too much close contact. You know players will have their own boards to practice on they 'll obviously be in their own hotel rooms when they 're not at the event once they 've played their match they 'll go home, once they've returned after Christmas, the way the tournament works, let me explain for those that aren't aware, before Christmas, there's lots of matches and each player only plays once or twice. But then after Christmas, we get down to the latter stages and players are playing almost every day. So once they come back after Christmas, then that's it. Then they're in and they'll stay till they're eliminated or they're, one of them wins the tournament. But everybody else before Christmas will turn up a day before their game, have a test, quarantine, be transported to the venue, practice, play their match and then go home again. So the the opportunity for close contact is actually pretty limited, um, and and you know they'll be tested before their first game. If they fail, we'll have reserve players on standby. Once they've played, if they return and they then fail, then it's a bye for their opponent, and that's obviously what we 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 wouldn't want to see. But again, because the players are being careful, hopefully that doesn't happen. Your mate from Liverpool's
1: not on standby, is he?
3: The guy, the guy who turned up who he who didn't have a ranking point. From Barnsley, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if he's on standby, John, I think you're I think you're about <laughs> a game by the time by the time he gets to play.
1: <laughs> you mentioned the DCMS were really supportive for, for you. What about in sport in general? Have some sports been left behind from government support?
3: Uh, well, yeah, I mean maybe. You know, we haven't had any, to be blunt. You know, and across the Matchroom Group, which is our parent company, we've incurred a lot of costs and we've lost a lot of revenue. You know, we, we had a pilot scheme at the Crucible for the World Snooker Championship that stuttered its way off the ground for 24 hours before it had the plug pulled on it. Um, you know, the, the, the darts has been decimated by the lack of, 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 uh, of gate receipts over the last six months. And it's only from our rock-solid broadcast and sponsor contracts that we've been able to keep the wheels turning. Other sports are not as fortunate as that. You know, grassroots sports that maybe rely on membership, membership fees and subscriptions, um, who don't have uh, so much commercial income. You know, it's been difficult for them and, and clearly there has been some government support and you know the government do have to write checks for a lot of people at the moment so I'm not going to say that they're, they're deliberately leaving people high and dry but ultimately people have to compensate for that loss of revenue because otherwise they won't be able to keep generating the activity either at elite level or grassroots level or community level that, that they are doing or have been doing previously.
2: You talk about your contracts with broadcasters, with sponsors. What about the local leagues, the pub leagues, the grassroots? Do you, as the professional darts corporation chief executive, feel a responsibility to those people and those
3: leagues and those players? I think ultimately we're not a governing body. We're a promotions company. So we have our own system, which starts really with kids in something called the Junior Darts Corporation in their academy system under eights. And that progresses through to our development tour, our challenge tour and our pro tour. So we, we have a structure for serious semi-pro professional players, you know, anyone who fits into those categories. Social players don't fall under our remit. Um, and actually social players, the, the way that their leagues are structured, they don't really need any revenue. They turn up at their local pub or club and they play against another local pub or club and they might travel locally, you know, to, to, to facilitate that. So they've had their activity put on hold. And that's a shame. And what we don't want to do is lose talented people from the sport, lose young young players who have got potential to to move on to the next level. So you know we will look at how you know we can get those those players back playing again next year. But clearly the requirement or the the, the way that that can happen would mean that pubs would have to be open, clubs would have to be open, you know, and and people could play uh, in a in a sensible manner because not everywhere can facilitate two meter social distancing and, and, and things like that. So. I think that's something that we wouldn't want to see darts destroyed by. Um, But, you know, the decisions would have to come from above us that that could restart.
2: And when you talk about your sponsors and your broadcasters, they're not immune to what I'm sure has been a financial hit this year. So the bigger picture will you be, or have they been coming to you to to look to review some of those contracts and the way that they work?
3: I mean, TV sports um, viewing figures have been good this year. You know, people are spending more time at home they're interested in how sports are being staged in these conditions. So, so I think broadcasters have generally been been doing, you know, as, as well as they, they would like to have been. And, and the same for a lot of our sponsors as well. You know, I mean, we've got a lot of blue collar sponsors, a lot of trade sponsors. Well, if you ask anybody who's tried to do any DIY over the last nine <laughs> months, you can't get materials. The whole country's doing their house up and doing their garden, you know? So I'm not, listen, I'm not sitting here and saying all our sponsors profits are going through the roof, but I think we are fortunate in that we've, we are partnered with, some companies who have uh, either adapted to this world or were built for this world and, and have come through it okay. I put
2: a door up during that, which I have to say I'm more proud of than I am my own children. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're talking to Matt Porter, Chief Exec of the Professional Darts Corporation. And Matt, you've been Chief Exec since 2008. You mentioned Matchroom, which of course is Barry Hearn's company. How proud are you that you've revolutionized the sport of darts and many others?
3: Oh, listen! I think what you know what's happened to to darts have, in the terms of its repositioning, its rebranding over the last generation has been nothing short of miraculous. You know, the sport was on its knees at the end of the '80s. You know, the players, obviously the the, the top BDO players at the time, left to form the, the PDC in a, in a you know a well-known story, um, and then they managed to get the support of a fledgling B B, B Sky B organization to to help get them off the ground. But really, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, the the, the growth curve has been spectacular. And, and that combination of sport and entertainment and the fact that darts is such an approachable, achievable, attainable sport. You know, there's no gender barriers. There's no age barriers. There's no class barriers. You don't need... And to, to have been in a, in a scholarship or have a huge amount of equipment or space, you know, an eight-year-old boy can play against an 88-year-old woman. It's, it's, it, darts is open to everybody. And, and I think people can embrace that and, and they can, you know, whether they want to play it or not, they can relate to it. And one of the
1: success stories of 2020, and there hasn't been many sports success stories, was of course Fallon Sherrick at last year's PDC Championships, that was a huge breakthrough for women's sport, and Matchroom has continued that with Katie Taylor in boxing, etc.
3: Yeah, this is a great this is a great time for women's sport and, and its development, isn't it? You know, I mean, women have been playing sport obviously f- forever, and you know, battled through bans and restrictions and l- l- lack of opportunities and things like that. And now there is a groundswell of of optimism. I think that things can move forward. And I have been reading, you know, disappointingly that some some sports have, you know, they feel that covid situation has set women's sport back and you know i'm not best placed to comment on on all of that and that would be a pity if that you know is is born true because the momentum that women's sport was building both in terms of participation and media um over the last few years has has been fantastic certainly the most i've seen in my lifetime you know i mean when i when i was growing up women's football and things like that were, were you know barely acknowledged um you know whereas now women players are, you know, are starting to receive some of the the, um, you know, the, praise and the status that they deserve. But there's clearly a long way to go. And hopefully, um, you know, COVID won't hold that back too much. You know, in terms of darts, we've always seen it as being a sport where men can play against women, as I touched upon earlier. And that's something we want to harness and develop because it's quite a unique selling point for us.
2: So just as a bit of a side point, um, Matt, and I know obviously you were heavily involved with Leighton Orient, does does women's football, for example, or women's rugby need, need a Barry Hearn? Does it need someone like him to come in and, and set something up that will propel it like he has with darts and snooker and boxing and other sports?
3: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know if, you know, Barry would thank me for increasing his workload at the <laughs> age of 73 or whatever. And we do get approaches from plenty of sports, you know. Can, can you come and put the matchroom touch on it? And a lot of the time, I think to myself... Well, do it yourselves. It's not difficult. Everything we do, you can see. You can watch it on telly or you can come to an event. You just have to use your eyes and see what we're doing. If you think it's that good, then then do it yourselves, you know. But look, some people don't have the commercial now. So I think a lot of sports are hamstrung by being run by enthusiastic amateurs and I mean amateurs in the nicest possible way, they're they're volunteers, the people who've given their lives to their sport, the people who are dedicated to local clubs and participation and grassroots and all of that stuff is fantastic but you have to separate that from the commercial elite of the sport and how people can best move that on to the next level and stop it being niche and, and try and get it into the mainstream and I think a lot of the time you know if I was being cruel I'd call them the blazer brigade um, but I think a lot of time, those sort of people, when they, when they refuse to let commercial uh, experts into that, the top of their sport, and I get they might be a bit nervous about having outside influence, but ultimately, look what happened to darts. You know, they, they took that on board by inviting Barry on board, um, you know, and look what happened there. And, 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 it, and it's, you have to separate the mass grassroots participation side of your sport from the elite and build a proper pyramid where you're bringing kids in at a young age and you're, you're, you're giving them two options one play for fun social enjoy yourselves this can be a hobby for the rest of your life or however long you want it to be or two you've got talent let's get you in the right place let's get you developed let's get you to a position where you can turn professional where you can play internationally etc and I think some sports struggle with that because they don't want to let go of something they've always had.
2: You're on the right podcast because John and I have often been critical of what we call the the Blazer Brigade as well. Because you have sports like cricket, for example, where in the IPL and T20, they have tried to to go down the matchroom route, the darts route, if you like. But then you have the people that want to stick to the five-day test match and you know, wouldn't want to see fireworks over Lord's yeah. athletics at the last World Championship. There were light shows and things. Yeah. So you must watch those and think, well, we know where they're getting their inspiration yeah, from. To
3: be fair, we got it from WWE. You know, it wasn't. It was. You know, it wasn't. We, we've obviously expanded on it and and developed it. And uh, you know, what Eddie does on a lot of our boxing shows now is taking it to the next level. They've got tremendous budgets. You know, so I think across our group, each division stages sports appropriately, and I think that is the key. The key thing to. You know to do don't just take your sport and say right well all we need to do is put some fireworks in and some dancers and have loads of loud music and then all of a sudden everyone will buy a ticket because if that's not appropriate for your sport then it's not going to work. You know, you, you've know, got to look at where you're staging it, what, when you're staging it, who you're staging it with in terms of broadcast partners, sponsors, how they're engaging with it, how you're going to build the overall product, what, how you're getting your message across to your fans and keeping them engaged on, on different levels and, and, and all the different ways in which they interact with you. Because just to stick some fireworks on something, is, is good, people see through that a mile off. So I think, there, yeah, it's like that argument that you said is, is dead right. There is a place for five-day test matches and there is a place for cricket. But don't start putting the fireworks in on the test matches because that's not what the, the test matches warrant and deserve. And, well, I was going to say, don't start making 2020 matches last five days, but I don't know you'd, <laughs> I don't know, you'd make that happen. But you, you know what I mean. Well, you mentioned fireworks.
1: Sometimes they call the Olympics and the Paralympics the greatest show on earth. When are we going to see darts on the Olympic programme?
3: Well, it's not something we've ever pushed. Um, I mean, the, the, I think rule number one of IOC membership is that a sport shall have one, one recognised global governing body. And darts falls down on that straight away because we've got the Darts Regulation Authority as our governing body and they're the governing body of professional darts. Um, but then there's the uh, World Darts Federation who are the governing body of amateur darts. So, you know, there's there's a technical issue there, which I'm sure if there was really need to, you know, it could, it could be overcome. But actually as well, I suppose we, we probably believe that an Olympic sport should be a sport where winning the gold medal is the pinnacle of that sport. And if that was to be the case, then that would diminish our world championship. Because at the moment, winning our world championship is the holy grail for our players. And, and we want that to remain the same. And yeah, people will argue that the two can live hand in hand, but I'm not sure... There's a reason why we've never pushed it, and I think that's because within the sport and within the organisation, we don't gen- genuinely believe that it's the path we should go down.
2: And you mentioned earlier the players are essentially freelancers. They're they're playing for their, their dinner, if you like. They're playing for their prize money. Having a gold medal around their neck, there might be some commercial benefits to that, but actually you'd rather have the, the six-figure sum in the bank account at the yeah, end of the year, I- wouldn't you?
3: I suppose you'd argue that the medal brings the the six-figure sum afterwards, and the players will probably hate me for saying that because they'll all would love to win an Olympic gold medal, and I don't blame them at all. I'm sure if you said to Michael van Gerwen to stand up there and hear the Dutch national anthem and have a medal around his neck, would be an, you know an unbelievable moment, and the same for for you know Gerwin Price, Peter Wright, Michael Smith, the other the other top boys. But you know it's just something that's never really been on our agenda, uh, and I think you know we've seen that the, the work that um, other sports have gone into to to get to the olympics it can take you years and years and years you know And we're focused on what we do we believe we deliver some of the best sporting events that are out there and we're happy to keep on doing that for you know both the glory and the money for the players what is
2: on your agenda then obviously we've seen darts played in madison square garden vegas we've famously seen darts there so what is on the agenda what do you need to, to do breakthrough, through if you like
3: yeah, well, the, the global growth of the game is number one on our agenda at, at the moment. You know, when I started on the darts 2004, it was very much a British-based sport, um, you know, and we've we've expanded out into areas where there's a cultural fit, where there's a maybe a historical fit, the Commonwealth countries, Australia, New Zealand, places like that, Canada. But darts is a sport that's played everywhere around the world, just mostly on an amateur level. So our, our job is to develop professional structures in as many territories as we feel appropriate you know and we've got affiliated tours in North America down under in Australia and New Zealand across Asia Scandinavia uh, Central Europe Russia you know we've got we've got partners in in lots of different countries now and we're trying to build that it will take a long time and it's maybe even too late for those guys that are playing at the moment you know, it might be for the next generation to come through and be more used to playing competitively and with the opportunity to qualify for the World Championship or the World Cup and things like that. Um, but we're in it for the long haul and we're, and we're prepared to invest in those territories. We support them financially with resources, with expertise. And we go out there when we feel it's appropriate to do World Series events or, or other other events uh, and help to spread the word and, and you know, br- bring it to people's attention. To Like we did in the UK where we're under no misapprehension that everybody who comes to darts is an avid dart player. We know they're not. But when we go to other countries, we want to have the same there. In Australia, we want rugby league and AFL fans to come because the darts is fun as well. You know, they don't need to play darts. They might want to have a go afterwards. But as long as they can uh, come and enjoy themselves, then that's what's important to us. Matt, I want to talk a little bit about you. You were at Lake Norian, as Michael mentioned earlier, for
1: eight and a half years. Mm. And... PDC since, what's easier, running a football club or, or running darts?
3: Oh, the darts is much easier. and uh, For one reason, for one reason, the fans don't complain. <laughs> it, it, uh, you, football, you
1: had a good relationship with the Orient fans.
3: Uh, listen, the fans were great at Orient, but they still moaned when we lost. And quite <laughs> right, they should do. It's because if you, if you don't care, you don't complain, do you? You know? But at football, uh, football, I used to find that if we lost on a Saturday we could have delivered the best match day experience. You could have had the best meal in the restaurant, read an interesting program, bought the merchandise you want from the shop. Your seat was nice and clean and blah, 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 blah. But everybody moaned. If we won, it didn't matter if there was bird muck on your seat, there was no food to buy, the shirt in your size wasn't in the shop. Nobody, you know, nobody cared. So it, it's, it's a results-based industry. And, and you know, that rings so true. Whereas in darts, people come for the experience. As long as we deliver a good show, people are generally happy.
2: What would you be doing now if you were still in charge of Leighton Orient? It's such a tough time, isn't it, for for lower league football clubs with without those revenue streams that you were just talking about—that incremental income, fans coming through the turnstiles.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not—I'm um, I'm on the board still at Orient. I'm not chief exec, you know, which suits me. Obviously, when we sold the club in 2014, I left shortly afterwards, and then um, was part of the group that. that Took it back over again in 2017 so that non-exec role I I find absolutely perfect for me now and I can help where I'm needed and 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 leave them alone where 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 needed and what they're doing is is great under the circumstances you know they were very progressive during the lockdown they had a a really good um FIFA um FIFA uh, you know gaming uh competition that generated a lot of headlines they got the sponsorship with Harry Kane they've done a lot of good community work you know, and, and the guys there are really putting their heart and soul into it in the face of extremely difficult conditions um, with with not having the, the matchday revenue. But the thing that's important and the thing that, that they do, which we always used to try to do, and, and it works well with fans, is just be honest with them. You know, fans might not like the answer, but if you tell them the answer truthfully and honestly to their face, then they kind of have to accept it. And they do generally accept it even if they don't like it. Whereas if you seem to be being deceitful or non-communicative, that's when rumours spread and distrust spreads and, and, and you get problems. So, you know, I think what the, what the guys are doing at Orient is great at the moment. The team are responding. I'm actually kind of hoping that the return of fans doesn't mess us up because we're doing quite well at the moment. We're in the playoff zone and, and we've got a couple of lads who can't stop scoring. So hopefully they'll be all right with fans back. And A little earlier, you mentioned Barry Hearn. Um, what's he like as
1: a, a person and a boss?
3: Uh, Barry is what what you see with Barry is what you get. You know, he's got a great personality. He's loud. He's charismatic. He's honest. You know, he is the clever. He's clever. He's clever, isn't he? Clever. He's smart. You know, and street smart as well. He's, he gets what people are thinking. He gets how to do a deal and how to... Um, engineer a situation that's advantageous and turn a situation around if it's going against him. You know, he's got that awareness to be one step ahead and that's something that I've tried to learn from for the last sort of 19 years or so that I've been been working from him. But, you know, you see people, Oh, that Barry Ernie's bent, he's a crook. He couldn't be any further away. I mean, a chartered accountant at the age of 21 or whatever I think he is, you know, all he ever says to us is make sure everybody gets paid, make sure you do the paperwork, do, you know, do the budgets. He wants everything to be, dead straight down the line. Uh, and again, you know, he'll look at you and he'll tell you the situation. And if you don't like it, it's kind of hard luck. Because I just think there was that
2: point in the spring where Wimbledon was cancelled, the boat race was cancelled. And Barry Hunt stepped in. He went, do you know what? We can stage the World Snooker Championships. The BBC have got two weeks suddenly free because there's not going to be any tennis. We can get it on at the Crucible. And that yeah. just seemed to be a really clever move. He seemed to take a jump on everybody else in doing that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of, that's a perfect example. You know, always thinking ahead, always being creative. You know, it it didn't want us to cancel anything. You know, that was the message. The show must go on, get it on, work out how you can do it. And, and we've got good people who work for the company, you know, people who are creative, people who are hardworking, who, who can try and think a bit differently. You know, we're not institutionalized, um, you know, and we're not stuck. We're fortunate because we're independent and relatively small in terms of numbers. We're not stuck behind layers of bureaucracy. Uh, And that enables us to be versatile and flexible.
2: Well, your event is happening, as we said, 96 players setting out to become the world champion. Against everything else that's happened, this must be one of your proudest achievements of your career, having these PDC World Championships on.
3: Yeah, you know what? I get goosebumps on the back of my neck every time I go into Ali Pali for the first time uh, for the event each year. You know, it's walking into that. when it's empty is quite haunting you know the stage is enormous and you see this you know the seating laid out and it you just visualize how bouncing it's going to be when it's full of people um and but this year to get it on in this environment i think will feel will feel special but it never feels quite as good as it does when the last person leaves at the end and it's been a success you know getting it on is only half the story getting it done and getting it done right is is the main the main aim
2: well all the very best with getting it on and getting it done right and tickets on sale for the event now as well. Matthew Porter, Chief Executive of the Professional Darts Corporation. All the very best to Ali Pali over the next 2 to 3 weeks. Thank you for speaking to Great British Bosses.
3: Thanks guys, it's been a pleasure.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round 2. Name something that's not boring.
1: Laundry? Ooh, a book club.